This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I'll be reading two short stories by Amelia Reynolds Long, which were published in Astounding Stories, 1937. We've got The Mind Master first, followed by Cosmic Fever. We are also playing music from 1937. In the background right now, we are listening to part four of Low from... Part four Low from Fête de Belles O, composed by Oliver Messin, uh, performed by the Ensemble Dons de Montreal. Uh, the work was commissioned for the 1937 Paris Exhibition to accompany the Fountains Movement. The piece is performed on six owned Martinotes, an electronic musical instrument invented in 1928 by Maurice Martinot. This was the first piece Messon composed for the instrument, which he used later in many works. The instrument is controlled by moving a ring along a wire, which creates a wavering theremin-like sound, which is then uh, the pitch is controlled with a keyboard. Uh, there are also buttons to like choose what kind of wave, is it a square wave, triangle wave, stuff like that. Um, it's been used in many science fiction and horror films as early as 1936 um, in... Sasha's, Sasha Gultry's Le Roman d'un Tricheur. So I guess it's not out of place to have it on this show for background for sci-fi stories. Uh, the instrument is still used in contemporary music. Uh, Radiohead is credited to bringing it back to a larger audience when they used it in their 2000 album, Kid A. I really loved this piece and wanted to piece together a couple of ensembles uh, renditions of it for the radio, but I could only find this one recording by L'Ensemble Dons de Montreal. Um, so that's what you get. Uh, now, just a little bit about our author. Amelia Reynolds Long was born in 1904. She lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and died in 1978. Outside of science fiction and fantasy, she also wrote detective stories under the pseudonym Peter Reynolds. In 1957, uh, the British film Fiend Without a Face was based on her short story The Thought Monster, uh, which was about a scientist that could physically project his thoughts. She was said to stop writing science fiction in 1940 because, and I quote, science fiction had hit the comic strips and I felt that it was a sort of degrading to compete with a comic strip. She continued to write, um, writing mystery novels from 1936 to 1952 and poetry for the rest of her life, with two collections of poetry published a couple of years before her death. When she stopped writing mysteries, she got a job as a college textbook editor in 1951, where she worked until 1958, and was a curator for the William Penn Museum from 1960 to 1976. So she was pretty um, 
In the town and the area of Pennsylvania that she was in, she was viewed as a pretty um, important figure. So, so there's actually a lot of information about her and like websites dedicated to her, which is cool because a lot of the women that we look at, there's very little information about them. So I'll leave you with the rest of this song and then start the next story. The Mind Master by Amelia Reynolds Long, which was first published in Astounding, Volume 20, Number 4, in December of 1937. The Mind Master by Amelia Reynolds Long. Thought transferred from one field of consciousness to another, existing independently. Dr. Grenfeld looked at the bandaged stump that was all the remains of his arm, then down at the blanket that covered his legs. They had managed to save his life after that plane crash, yes, but at what cost? They had left him one-armed, helpless cripple, paralyzed from his waist down. Of what use to a doctor was a body such as this? It would have been better if they had let him die. But you still have your mind surgery, doctor, young Giles, his assistant, had reminded him optimistically. You can diagnose and direct others in the use of your wonderful machine. Yes, he reflected, he still had that. But to have to sit helpless in his chair while another had the thrill of experimenting with the new mind machine, his remarkable new invention that, through electrical stimulation, was to restore men's lost memories, blot out the brain cells harboring criminal impulses, in short, that could mold the human mind as he, Norman Grenfeld, saw fit. Yet, what hideous irony that his own mind, with all its brilliance, should be chained to this mutilated hunk of flesh. But was it? Long ago, he had begun to suspect that the psychologists were wrong, and that the mind was not a mere byproduct of behavior. 
The first hint had come to him through his experiments with mental telepathy. If thought could be transferred from one field of consciousness to another, then it must be something that existed independently of matter, a kind of electrical impulse that used a, the brain merely as a medium for its expression. It had been upon that principle that he had built the mind machine. He hugged the idea to him now. He had already discovered the length and frequency of the thought wave. That had been necessary for the operation of his machine. But why, instead of using it merely to control the mental operations with a single brain, could the process not be applied to two brains simultaneously? Why could the mind current not be made to flow from one brain to another, much as it did in the temporary process of telepathy? Of course, the mind current already occupying the second brain would have to be forced out and lost. But that did not matter to Grenfell. If the thing could be done, he needed no longer to be a slave to this battered carcass of his. He could commandeer a new, strong body. He played with the idea, examining it from all angles. It would necessitate certain changes in his machine, but they were elementary. He began to practice writing with his left hand until, at last, he was able to draw up the necessary specifications. Giles could have the new parts made and attach them for him. It was going to be comparatively easy. He naturally did not take Giles into his confidence, but explained that the new attachment was a device by which a doctor could study his patient's brain, as he now studied the heart with a stethoscope. The tiny electric current generated within the brain of the patient would be amplified and translated into sound through a headpiece worn by the examiner. Giles accepted the explanation without question, and when the new parts were made, he attached them to the machine under his superior's direction. Grinfeld watched the young man as he worked. His eyes rested upon the sure, capable hands, the broad, intelligent forehead. Here was a strong, well-made body. He began to formulate the final part of his plan. In the hospital's charity ward, for hopeless mental cases were two patients that were little better than Mongolian idiots, revolting caricatures of humanity without even the intelligence of a wild animal. If the machine failed to work, the deaths of this pair would be no loss. Besides, they would die soon anyway. This type never lived long after attaining the adult stage. He had them removed to the top floor, where his private laboratory was for special observation. He waited until an hour when he could be sure of no interruptions. Then he wheeled himself into the space between their two beds. The machine had already been placed there at his direction by Giles. With his one arm, he laboriously adjusted the metal caps to the misshapen heads. Then he paused for a final study of his two human guinea pigs. Although neither of them was capable of demonstrating intelligent behavior, 
each had certain characteristics that differentiated him from the other. The one on his left, for example, had a habit of continually plucking at the bedclothes. It was upon insignificant trifles like this that Grenfeld was depending to tell him whether his experiment had worked or not. With fingers that insisted upon trembling in spite of all that he could do, Grenfeld pushed over the switch. The motor of the machine began to hum, softly at first, then more loudly as he increased the power. The two bodies upon the beds jerked spasmodically and stiffened into immobility. Grunfeld waited until three minutes had been ticked off by the clock. Then slowly he began to decrease the power. The bodies relaxed again. Grunfeld passed the tip of his tongue over his dry lips. He kept swaying his head from side to side, trying to observe both figures at once. Suddenly, a hoarse cry of triumph burst from him. The patient on his right had begun to pluck at the bedclothes. Feverishly, he turned to the mindless thing on his left. It was not moving. Even the chest appeared to be still. Grinfeld caught one of the thick wrists between his trembling fingers and felt for the pulse. Then he swore softly. The fool had chosen that moment to die. In the weeks that followed, Grinfeld studied young Giles closely, memorizing his every mannerism. If the second part of his plan was to be carried out successfully, there was a great deal that he would have to know in order to escape detection. Under the guise of friendly interest, he questioned his assistant about his outside life until there was nothing of importance concerning the young man with which he was not familiar. One day, when he and Giles were alone together, Greenfeld, Greenfeld broached a subject that was to be significant later. Boy, he said, simulating a kindly smile, you've been invaluable to me during these past six months. You have been my hands and feet. Giles, who always became embarrassed upon occasions like this, muttered something about considering it a rare privilege to be permitted to work with a man like Grenfell. And it may not be long, Grenfell added, watching the other covertly to study the effects of his words. Before I may have to ask even more of you, I may have to ask you to be my brain as well. Your brain? Giles repeated in blank astonishment. What do you mean, doctor? Ever since my accident, the older man went on, I've been experiencing strange mental blanks. They are more than brief attacks of amnesia. They are passages of time of which I have absolutely no recollection. Lately, they have been increasing. Why didn't you tell me long ago? Giles exclaimed. With your machine, you... But Grenfell shook his head. I doubt if the machine will help in my case, he said gloomily. I suspect some head injury, which my colleagues here at the hospital did not discover. Cerebral disintegration has set in. As you are aware, there is no cure for that. Therefore, I have arranged with my lawyer that... 
in the case of my losing my mind or of anything else befalling me, all of my personal property, including my notes and the patent on my machine, will be turned over to you. I will expect you to carry on my work. Giles could only stammer out his mixed emotions. He was thrilled and delighted by the honor that Grenfell's action had bestowed upon him, but he sincerely hoped that the time would be far away when he should reap the benefits of it. Meanwhile, Dr. Grenfell must let him perform an examination with the new attachment to the mind machine. Perhaps something could still be done. Grinfeld smiled inwardly. The young fool had fallen for it and had even suggested himself that they use the mind machine. That would make matters a lot easier. He waited a few more weeks just to make everything appear natural. He even pretended on one or two occasions not to recognize Giles when he came into the laboratory, knowing that the young man would carry the story of his approaching breakdown to the other doctors on the staff. The build-up for his mental collapse must be complete. At last, he brought up the subject of the machine. Giles, he began, you have seen for yourself that I am rapidly slipping. I have no illusions about there being any likelihood of a cure for me, but I want you to give me a thorough examination with the machine. I've got to know how long it will be before... He broke off with a gesture meant to be a blend of pathos and resignation. Of course I'll examine you, doctor, Giles exclaimed eagerly. But don't give up hope so easily. Things may not be so bad as you imagine. Grinfell smiled tolerantly. The optimism of youth, he sighed. Well, we'll see. Perhaps, he added as an afterthought, you had better ask Dr. Green to be present. We may want him for consultation. Best to have a disinterested witness present at the all-important moment. Giles nodded. When do you want the examination to take place, he asked. This afternoon, if Dr. Green is at liberty. During the intervening hours, Grinfell went carefully over his machine. Then he set the automatic controls gradually to increase the power, to run steadily for three minutes, and gradually to decrease again. All that was necessary now was to throw the control switch on and off. He smiled with ironic amusement as he realized that he would do the first as Norman Grenfell and the second as Henry Giles. He had barely completed his final adjustment when his young assistant arrived, accompanied by Dr. Green. I've already explained the workings of the new apparatus to Giles, Grenfell said to Green. I will place this metal cap upon my head and he will place this one upon his. When the current is turned on, he will receive an amplification of my mental vibrations over the connecting wire. Should a break in the current occur, it will indicate the presence of a brain lesion. I understand, Dr. Green said, and honestly thought that he did. Grenfell placed upon his head the light metal cap with its 11 electrodes, 10 for the major 
convolutions of the cerebrum of the brain, and one for the cerebellum. Giles did likewise. Grinfell reached out his hand toward the switch, then paused to remark to Green, You know, Doctor, the examination is more Giles's idea than mine. He is convinced that I may not be so badly off as I imagine. But in any case, I have arranged matters so that, whatever happens to me, he is to take my place and carry on my work. He threw over the switch. He felt his crippled body jerk convulsively as the gradual, increasing current raced through his brain. It was as though his very ego was being ripped out and carried along the little strand of wire. The unconsciousness descended. When he came to, he felt weak and ill, like a man who had been under severe physical and mental strain. Something was buzzing in his head like a swarm of bees. It sent a tingling sensation all through him. There was something he had to do, something connected with the bees and the tingling sensation. Now he remembered he must throw off a switch on the machine over there. He rose unsteadily upon trembling legs, fumbling awkwardly with the mechanism, and at last succeeded in cutting off the current. As the buzzing and tingling stopped, he found that he was able to think more clearly. Then he realized that he had walked to the machine, while the hand with which he had thrown the switch had been his right hand, and that twisted, maimed body slumped there in the wheelchair above which Dr. Green was now bending. A shout of exaltation bubbled to his lips. I've done it, he cried hysterically with the realization of success. It worked. Dr. Green turned from the motionless figure in the wheelchair. There was horror in his eyes, horror and indignation. Yes, you young blackguard, he rasped. You've done it. Couldn't wait for him to die naturally to get his money in position. You had to murder your benefactor. I saw you electrocute him just now with his own machine. In a daze, Grinfell felt himself being led away by blue-coated policemen. Then a bright light was in his eyes and men with big fists and hard faces were screaming at him to confess, confess, confess to his own murder. Only when he sat in the condemned cell awaiting his execution did Grinfell, now Giles, realize where his plan had slipped up. The ego, or mind force, was closely intertwined with the life of the physical body. In tearing out the one, he had destroyed the other. That was The Mind Master by Amelia Reynolds Long, which was first published in Astounding, Volume 20, Number 4, in December 1937. <laughs> This is Books and Bonds with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. We just finished The Mind Master by Amelia Reynolds Long. 
Um, I just wanted to apologize for the um, negative descriptions that he uses to describe the mental patients. This was written in the 30s, so some of the stuff is not always as PC as contemporary work. Uh, in the background, we've been hearing, uh, we heard part two, Adiago Molto from String Quartet Number no. 1 in E Major, Minor composed by Roger Sessions and performed by the Group for Contemporary Music. The piece was originally composed in 1936 and premiered in D.C. in 1937, the year of our stories. Uh, the work is one of his earlier compositions, and there are a few recordings of it. Now we are listening to String Quartet Number no. 4, OP 37, composed by Arnold Schralsberg with the first movement performed by the Gringoltz Quartet. We will hear the Fred Sherry String Quartet play the second movement, Quattro Diotima play the third, and Kolschlich Quartet play the fourth. Now back to our story, The Mind Master. We'll talk a little bit about that and the science. Uh, the story was where a scientist moves a person's consciousness to another person, the idea of copying brainwaves from one brain to another, as described, is not possible, as you probably assumed. Um, while thoughts are electrical impulses, the arrangement of neurons vary person to person. Um, we have managed to contemporarily um, visualize people's dreams using neural networks with a mean accuracy of 60% compared to the participant's description. So this was you know, five years ago, but in uh, 2013, neuroscientist Yukiyasu Kamitani, Kamitani had three test subjects take over 200 brief naps, each in an MRI machine, repeatedly waking them and having them describe their dreams. He used the MRI data descriptions to train a neural network to, in their simplest terms, uh, associate specific MRI impulses with images of descriptor words. So, a little bit about neural networks, just in case that's not your forte. Uh, neural networks are designed similarly to the way that our brains work. Artificial neural networks have nodes, which are um, uh, an analog for neurons. The nodes receive stimulation, which when activated... Um, reach to a certain activation function, it passes on the stimulation to the next node. Uh, there is a weight and a bias for each node, which can affect how the node is activated. Um, this wasn't a thing in 1937. When she was writing, the, the gestation of artificial intelligence was around 1943, when Warren McCullen and Walter Pitts uh, they combined prior work, knowledge of basic physiology and function of neurons in the brain, and formal analysis of propositional logic. Um, and using this, they proposed an artificial neuron that can be switched on and off based on stimulation of neighboring neurons. And this was... Um, actually later built Marvin Minsky 
and Dean Edmonds at Princeton built the SNARK, which was 3,000 vacuum tubes and an automatic pilot mechanism from a bomber to simulate a 40-neuron neural network. Uh, this later led to uh, Frank Rosenblatt's 1962 theory of perceptrons, which is like our current-day neural networks, but the problem was, was there wasn't the computational power to actually power them, so they got kind of pushed aside and other forms of artificial intelligence were researched. Um, because perceptrons, while it could learn anything, it required large amounts of data and computational power, which they didn't have. But it kind of came back, and in the late 80s, a paper was written rediscovering it. Um, and due to the advancements in computational power, it was found that neural networks could learn complex data. So that's a little back history on neural networks. And we'll hear our next story. Next, I will be reading Cosmic Fever by Amelia Reynolds Long, which was first published in Astounding Stories, Volume 18, Number 6, in February of 1937. Cosmic Fever, heat, 96 degrees Fahrenheit, in what was practically outer space, by A.R. Long. Pat Marsh turned at the foot of the short rope ladder that led to the opening of the gondola of the stratosphere balloon and held out his hand to the little silver-haired Professor Anthony. Well, I guess we're all set, Professor, he said with his boyish grin. Wish me luck. With all my heart, lad, the older man gripped the young scientist's hand feverishly. Then a shadow flitted across his scholarly features. "'You're sure everything's all right, Pat?' he asked anxiously. "'There's no danger this time of any accident?' Pat Marsh nodded, his fair head reassuringly. But there was an expression of grimness in his blue eyes. "'I made another checkup just before you got here,' he replied. "'Everything is in perfect condition.' What's more, I know definitely this time there's nothing in the gondola except the instruments that I put there myself. If it's possible to be sure of anything in this world, I'm positive that there can be no repetition of what happened the other two times. On the two former occasions, Pat had attempted to send sounding balloons into the upper regions of the Earth's atmosphere. Each of these had consisted of the usual two gas bags, a smaller inside of a larger. It had been estimated that the outer bag would burst at an altitude of 60 miles, well into the nitrogen layer that exists above the stratosphere proper. When this occurred, the smaller inner bag would act as a parachute and descend gently with its attached container in which Pat had placed his newly improved set of instruments for the recording of cosmic rays. 
On the first occasion, the container had been recovered four days later in a prairie section of the Middle West, but when it had been opened, the records upon the drums were found charred beyond legibility, while some of the more delicate instruments were warped and twisted into uselessness. Concluding that some unforeseen accident had taken place, the American Institute of Technology, which was financing the experiment, had backed Pat in the construction of a second set of instruments and the release of another sounding balloon. But when again a mysterious fire within the three-foot container had destroyed the records and wrecked hundreds of dollars worth of instruments, the directors of the Institute had lost patience. Such an accident could not occur twice in succession, they argued, unless the apparatus itself was at fault. Pat had protested in vain that his instruments had been in no way responsible for the combustion. His inventions had been condemned as impractical by the Institute's committee, while he himself had been pronounced a failure. But there had been one man who had not been satisfied with the committee's findings. Professor Roy Anthony, Pat's old friend and teacher, now head of the Institute's Department of Astrophysics, was convinced that there was more behind the mysterious fires than appeared upon superficial examination. And so, in order to prove his faith in his young protege, he had offered to privately finance the building of a third balloon for a final test. At Pat's suggestion, this one was to be different from the two predecessors. Instead of the small sounding balloon with its attached case of instruments, it was to be large enough to support a spherical gondola similar to those used by Picard and other stratosphere explorers, in which Pat himself would accompany his instruments into the upper atmosphere. This, he had pointed out, was the only possible way to discover the cause of the trouble, whether it was indeed the fault of the mechanism or, as one of the more sensation-loving newspapers had begun to hint, the work of some imical outside agency. There were, the paper had observed, certain foreign governments intensely interested in stratosphere flights who might prefer to keep the field exclusively to themselves. For the following six months, Pat and two trusted assistants had isolated themselves in the lonely plateau land of New Mexico, where the gondola was assembled and equipped. None of the three ever left the grounds, while the only person allowed to visit them was Professor Anthony. At last came the day when all preparations had been completed and the ascent into the regions of the superstratosphere, a height never before dared by man, was about to be attempted. With a wave of his hand to the assembled newspaper men, photographers, and newsreel cameramen, at the edge of the field, Pat climbed into the gondola and drew the short ladder up after him. A kick of his foot threw over the lever that closed the heavy sliding door, sealing him in the hollow sphere. Casting a quick glance through one of the observation windows to make sure that Professor Anthony and the two workmen had got clear, 
he stepped to the tiny table built against the wall and with a hand that trembled slightly, pressed the key of an electric switch box, touching off the detonation caps that were to cut loose all of the ground moorings at once, thus allowing the balloon to rise evenly into the air. The dull boom that followed was inaudible to him in his soundproof compartment, but he felt the quick tug as the four great cables parted. Then all sensation of motion vanished as the balloon shot upward into the resistless atmosphere. From the little group on the edge of the field, a lusty cheer went up, and cameras clicked madly as the great silver gas bag with its bulging top and steeply sloping, still uninflated lower portion that gave it the appearance of an inverted giant drop of mercury rose higher and higher, carrying the comparatively tiny gondola with it, until with the increasing altitude the two dwindled into one single shining speck. For a moment that speck seemed to hover almost directly overhead like a belated morning star, then it vanished completely into the fathomless blue. From the observation window of the gondola, Pat Marsh saw the earth drop from beneath him, saw the panorama of plateaus, valleys, and mountain peaks spread out like a giant relief map. A moment or so, he watched it with a sort of half-fascination. Then he turned away from it to his instruments. The altimeter was climbing steadily, one mile, two miles, two and a half. Presently, the light began to take on a grayish, silverly luminescence, and he knew that he was entering the Earth's ragged cloud blanket. This lasted for only a few minutes, then suddenly it was gone, and the vivid sunshine, almost dazzling in its brilliance, took its place. Again, he looked out of the window. Beneath him spread a billowing, nebulous sea, flecked with turquoise and amethyst shadows. A feeling of tremendous loneliness swept over him. Although he had often flown above the clouds in an ordinary airplane, it had never been quite like this. It was now as though a door had been closed upon him, blotting out a familiar face. For the next half hour or so, he busied himself with his instruments. The air in the gondola was beginning to grow stale, and he turned on his oxygen tank to replenish it. The balloon was now nine miles up, almost into the stratosphere. Already the sky had begun to grow dark, but not quite dark enough for the stars to be visible. Pat looked at his electroscope and saw that it indicated a noticeable increase in the presence of cosmic rays. Another half hour and he was well into the stratosphere. Glancing downward, he could discern the curvature of the Earth, its edges faintly shining in the reflected light of the sun. The balloon was still rising rapidly, for although the atmosphere was much thinner, the gravitational pull of the Earth was decreasing as the distance between it and the balloon increased. The gondola had now attained an altitude of 21 and a half miles, higher than man had ever before ventured. The sky was taking on the familiar blue-black of night. 
with the stars breaking through in clustered brilliance. To the north, the great and little dippers swung in their eternal march around the pole star, while against the zenith was set the mighty constellation of Orion with the orange glory of Betelgeuse, giant of the heavens, flashing from his right shoulder. In front of him, the beautiful cluster of the Hyades marked the head of Taurus, whose red eye, the fiery Aldebaran, glowed balefully. And between and beyond these and all of the other familiar sky marks, a hundred thousand lesser stars, ordinarily invisible to the naked eye, gleamed in lambent splendor. Pat peered through the observation window on his left and beheld the awesome phenomenon of the sun blazing in a black sky, the angry red of its chromosphere pulsing like the inflamed rim of a bloodshot eye from which the fiery tentacles of its protuberances writhed and darted into the roseate pearl of its cornea. The dazzling spectacle of that unveiled majesty was endurable only for an instant. Then he pressed his hands over his face in fear of blindness. When the brilliant afterimage caused by that brief glance into the sun's dazzling face had vanished from before his eyes, he returned once more to his instruments. The leaves of the electroscope were wide apart, with the inked line on the automatically revolving drum rose steadily, indicating the continued increase of cosmic rays. The balloon had now attained an altitude of 26 miles. Outside, the temperature registered minus 134 degrees Fahrenheit, almost 50 degrees colder than the lowest temperature ever recorded on Earth. Yet, oddly enough, Pat experienced no discomfort. On the contrary, he was growing too warm. Heavy beads of perspiration were forming upon his forehead and the back of his neck. He unbuttoned his coat and removed it. For some time, he had been vaguely conscious of the rising temperature inside the gondola, but he had been so engrossed by the panorama of the heavens unrolling before him that he had paid it scant attention. Now he glanced at the thermometer on the wall in front of him. It registered 96 degrees Fahrenheit, the temperature of an exceedingly hot summer day on Earth. That's funny, he muttered half aloud. It isn't possible that the absorption from the sun's rays could be so great through these heavily insulated walls. He examined the little electric heater that had been installed in case of emergency to ascertain whether it could have been turned on by accident. But no, it was not even connected. The only heat being generated inside the sphere was the practically negligible amount incidental to the running of the electric drums. He looked again from one of the observation windows, this time almost fearfully, half expecting to see some flaming giant meteor that was responsible for the conditions. Yet, as he looked, his scientist's reason told him that this was out of the question. 
even had it been possible for such a body to become more than faintly incandescent in this highly rarefied atmosphere, his instruments would have warned him of the approach long ago. Moreover, the meteor belt was down in the tropopause, now almost 20 miles below him. The ball was now over 29 miles up in the very outer fringes of the stratosphere. In another minute, it would have entered the nitrogen layer beyond, then would come to the real test of his experiment, for it was doubtful whether even the great hydrogen balloon could carry his weight and that of the gondola much farther, since although the atomic weight of nitrogen is 14.008, while that of hydrogen is only 1.0077, the atmospheric pressure at that great height was dropping rapidly. Pat was bending tensely over his instruments. Already the degree of ascent was slowing perceivably. The altimeter now registered 30 and a quarter miles, while the pressure gauge indicated a swift drop from 1.84 nearly to 0.403 millimeters. He turned to the electroscope and its revolving drum one of the most important pieces of apparatus on board, so far as the purpose of the expedition was concerned. If his calculations and those of other scientists were correct, the number of cosmic rays should now begin to increase with ever greater rapidity than it had done in the stratosphere. With a feeling of exultation, he saw the line being traced on the drum scud higher and higher, then, with a suddenness that was startling, the stylus shot almost vertically towards the top of the slow-moving graph paper. The next instant, Pat beheld drum, electroscope, everything within his range of vision, swim before his eyes in a distorting heat haze, while at the same time the air about him became like the stifling breath of a furnace. With trembling hands, he fumbled for the ripcord that opened the outer balloon when the sweat ran in rivers into his eyes totally blinding him tell me lad professor anthony entreated as he sat opposite pat marsh 24 hours later in the young man's hotel room why did you decide to come down when you had reached only one half of your intended altitude you say nothing went wrong with the apparatus then what happened? Was the balloon unable to rise higher in the nitrogen layer? Pat shook his head slowly. He was still weak and a trifle shaky, having been found unconscious inside the gondola when the balloon had drifted back to Earth. Oh, it would have continued to go up all right, he replied. That is, he added with a grim smile, if it hadn't exploded on the way. Exploded, Professor Anthony repeated. You mean that the outer balloon was in danger of bursting through the lessening of the atmospheric pressure? But I thought that possibility had been taken into account in the construction of the bag. It was, Pat answered. I didn't mean that. An expression of apprehension came into his tired eyes. 
My records, he exclaimed abruptly. Were they all right? They were, the little professor assured him. And even from my brief examination of them, I'm confident that they are going to add materially to our knowledge of cosmic rays. But there was only one thing about them that puzzled me. Part of the paper was slightly discolored, as if it had been exposed to heat or intense sunlight. I can't account for it. I can. Little grim lines appeared at the corners of Pat Marsh's mouth. It was heat, sir. Heat that was increasing so rapidly that if I had gone on, it would have caused spontaneous combustion in the gondola and exploded the hydrogen both in the inner and outer balloons, just as it did the two other times. What? The professor stared incredulously through the thick lenses of his spectacles. Heat in what is practically outer space? But that is impossible, Pat. Why, your own temperature record showed... Yes, I know, Pat interrupted. It sounds impossible, but it's true. Nevertheless, we should have suspected it long ago. Why, the clue was in our hands as early as 1931, when Picard made his first ascent into the stratosphere. But I don't understand... Professor Anthony passed a thin hand through his silver hair in a gesture of bewilderment. You'll remember, Pat explained, how when Picard made the ascent, the temperature of the gondola rose so high that he had to lick drops of moisture from the inner walls to assuage his thirst. I believe that this rise in temperature was explained as the absorption of the sun's rays, but that was only a very small part of the real story. The true explanation lays in the very phenomenon that he was attempting to study. You mean, the professor began, that the cosmic rays themselves? Exactly, Pat nodded. Cosmic rays are pure cosmic energy bombarding our Earth from outer space. And energy, as we both learned in our very first course in elemental physics, is anything which, under proper conditions, can be converted to heat. The dense atmosphere of the Earth serves to refract most of these rays just as it does ordinary heat and light rays from the sun. But up there, at a height of over 30 miles, where there is no protective atmosphere, they struck the gondola with their full intensity and with their almost incalculable powers of penetration passed straight through its walls. The almost pure oxygen within furnished the proper conditions for converting them into heat. Amazing, Professor Anthony exclaimed. And yet, as you say, Pat, we should have suspected the truth long ago. Then his face fell. I suppose, he said with a sigh, that puts an end to man's exploration in the Earth's upper atmosphere and an end to his dreams of future spaceflight as well. Looks that way, Pat agreed. Then he added with a grin, unless he can figure out some way to ensure himself against the hazard of fire from beyond. That was Cosmic Fever by Amelia Reynolds Long, which was first published in Astounding Stories, volume 18, number 6, in 
February of 1937. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Um, today I read two short stories by Amelia Reynolds Long, which were published in Astounding Stories 1937. We just heard Cosmic Fever, and now we are listening to String Quartet Number no. Four, OP 37, composed by Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, currently, this is the fourth movement performed by the Kolesk or Koshlik Quartet. It was recorded at the premiere of the piece in Los Angeles, 1937. So this is original. Um, so a cool fact about our last story, uh, Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek was named after Picard, the one referenced uh, for both or one of the twin brothers... Auguste Picard and Jean-Félix Picard, the 20th century Swiss scientists. Um, we have a special guest again this week, Sky, and I was going to ask him some about the physics in the story. So, Sky. Yes? Um, is flight is the flight that they described possible yes i'd say pat's 30 mile high flight is definitely within the realm of plausibility especially for a science fiction story manned high altitude balloons were really used by scientists and record seekers from the 1930s through the 60s and the swiss physicist auguste picard as mentioned in the story did design a spherical pressurized aluminum gondola which he first flew in 1931 along with his assistant, Paul Kipfer. They reached an altitude of nearly 10 miles, becoming the first people to see the world from that height. When Cosmic Fever was written in 1937, the altitude record was still only 13.7 miles, and the highest manned balloon flight since, in 1961, reached only 21.5 miles, much less than the flight in this story. Still, unmanned modern balloons with ultralight materials have reached as high as 33 miles. So, while it's certainly a stretch, with the proper equipment, Pat's 30-mile flight is imaginable. But his goal of reaching 60 miles is just impossible because the air pressure at that height is too low. A more straightforward mistake in the story is the statement that a balloon would feel enough decrease in gravity to ease its ascent. The gravitational pull on the balloon, or any object, depends not on its distance from the Earth's surface, but on its distance from the center of the Earth, as Newton discovered in the 17th century. Since the radius of the Earth is about 4,000 miles, traveling an additional 30 miles away from the surface doesn't make a big difference, and decreases the force of gravity by only about 1.5%. For example, someone who weighs 150 pounds on the surface of Earth would still weigh 148 pounds at an altitude of 30 miles. So, what about the resolution of the story? Could cosmic rays have overheated the gondola? First, it's absolutely correct that a main motivation for high-altitude balloon flights in the 1930s was to take measurements of cosmic rays, which we now know are high-energy particles that originate from supernovae and other sources outside our solar system. However, although individually the cosmic rays are extremely energetic, their overall density is so low, even above the atmosphere, that they only provide about as much energy as starlight. And that's not going to heat up your balloon until it explodes. 
Although there was no mysterious threat of fire from beyond, these balloon flights were dangerous. According to the August 1931 issue of Popular Science, during Picard's first ascent, the aluminum ball began to leak, and he and his assistant had to plug it desperately with Vaseline and cotton waste. So I'll leave you with that image today. Thanks, Guy. It was great to have you on. I guess we're finishing up our show today. Um, Bucks and Blondes with Ray Guns. And I'll see you next week. I'll leave you with part one, Cher Mabig of Variations for Piano, OP27, composed by Anton Weberg and performed by Ingrid Carlin.